0: I get to hang out with my best friend in church. These are the kind of conversations we actually have all the time for many, many hours. And I want this really just to be kind of an extension of that. Um, Chris, again, is the reason I got connected to Sanctuary at all. So the whole reason I was connected to Ed, Brent, and all of you came through him, and I am forever grateful. So always happy when you're here. Although, you know, Brent was saying that whenever you're really with us. I do believe in the doctrine of the real presence of Dr. Chris Green. Even when you're not here, you are somehow mysteriously present That's exactly and through, right through the sacraments. In some way. Um,
1: we don't have enough. You, we don't have enough Eucharistic joking. We don't. There's we not, not enough good that. Eucharistic real humor. presence and jokes. And that was not a great stab at it just then. <laughs> hey, but that, so you're, you're breaking new ground. Bra- breaking new yeah. ground. yes. Get that? Uh. <laughs>
0: um, wow. Well, yeah. So I think what we wanted to do the first few minutes before we take your questions is just to share a bit about. We both come from very similar backgrounds in terms of being uh, raised in a really classical Pentecostal environment that I know both of us cherish and value, but then going on this journey, too, of, of kind of rediscovering Eucharist and sacraments in a different way that I know has been transformative for us both. When we first started having these conversations a few years ago, we were both early on this journey, and it was all kind of just teasing out what could it mean to go deeper into these practices, having no idea where it would lead us, and... Uh, now, while, of course, still in the thick of all this and, you know, still learning so much, we are a little bit further into the journey. And I uh, wanted to reflect a, a bit right out of the gate just in terms of what it has looked like, what it has meant for us, what has changed for us, uh, to go deeper specifically in this practice of, of coming to the Lord's table. So, Chris, if we could start with you just in terms of saying a bit about what what the, the path has meant for you thus far.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it started, I don't know if you guys ever saw the movie it's not a great movie, but the Gwyneth Paltrow, Ethan Hawke version of Great Expectations from years and years ago. It starts with this wonderful line. Not a great movie, but it's a wonderful line. It says, "I will tell this story as I remember it, not as it happened." Hmm. <laughs> so, yes. you know, my friends and family would probably answer this question a bit differently than I would. I'm guessing, but but here's how I remember all of this playing out. I think it started with a comment a mentor made to me over lunch. He knew he knew that we had planted a church and we were. Kind of early in the, sta- in the stages of development. And he said that in his experience, it seemed to him that churches that emphasized preaching but didn't emphasize the Lord's Supper, over time, the preaching started to float free of the gospel. It just kind of found its way away from the gospel into practical advice about life, or whatever the case might be. And he said he thought it would be wise for us to connect the two, to keep us tethered to the gospel. And so we, we started to do that, kind of taking his advice, and pretty quickly, we started to discover, at least I, I felt this was happening to me, that this is the practice we need to kind of keep us tethered to the gospel so that we aren't pulled away into good advice about the kind of life we want to live, but really are brought back to the mystery of what God has done in Christ and what that means for us. I think that's where it started. And I think now, you know, a decade later or so, if I had to say, what's the one thing that Eucharistic spirituality has changed for me, I think it's made me worldly in a faithful way. So I, I don't want to blame the people that I grew up with at all because I, I don't know that this is what they meant. But I think the Pentecostalism that I grew up with was unworldly in an unfaithful way. Mm-hmm. They were so afraid of being worldly that they were, they, were in, they were interested instead in creating an alternative world where they could maintain innocence. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to be corrupted or polluted by anything out in the world. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I think there was a, a kind of diseased... Internal relationship with God, so that I wasn't really seeing the world and I wasn't really seeing people. Everything was about what's happening in my heart between me and God. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, as important as it is that my heart is right, human beings are not just individual spiritualities in relationship to a spiritual God. We're, we're creatures of body and of flesh and bone and blood, and we're put in the world for one another and to care for one another. And the Eucharist for me has been about regrounding and recentering centering my life in the world mm-hmm. to say these people matter, this world matters, what you do with your body matters, and that you'll find God not in the gaps between reality but at the depths of reality, mm-hmm. wow. that you attend to the world more. Robert Jensen has this wonderful read of the movie, a uh, second movie reference. I'm teaching a film class right now, so obviously this is just kind of pouring out of me, but the, he, he has this wonderful read of a beautiful mind. You know, John Nash's character is, is losing his mind, and at one point, his wife, Jennifer Connelly's character, takes his hand and puts it on her face, and she says, John, this is real. And Jensen says, that's what the Eucharist is. It's Jesus saying, this is my body, right here I am. <laughs> This is how you know what it means to be alive, and and, and reorient your whole life around this reality. And, I, and that's what I think Eucharist has done for me, spiritually and theologically.
0: Hmm. And I love that notion. We talked about that a bit in the last service about the way the Eucharist does ground us in mm-hmm. the real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Way. I think, especially in the Protestant tradition, we tend to one our services are very much oriented around preaching. And that was you know part of my own project was I began I began to be increasingly suspicious of Uh, you know all the more as a pastor of what does it mean for too much of this to be built around me because inevitably a lot of that's going to become about personality and all those things and I was I always gave like hour-long sermons back in those days and so yeah, that notion of kind of grounding in this in this practice of Eucharist kind of takes it out of that but beyond that yeah I think I'm a person who often gets lost in my head a lot in this notion of being grounded what's real kind of giving up. That, that work of, cre- of churches counterculture of always trying to create this whole alternative system mm. really is a great deal of work. But, Absolutely. It, but if the Eucharist teaches us how to recognize God in our real lives and do that everywhere we go, um, that, that's been a lot of um, of my experience. I think in the last couple years, the tables come on to take whole new dimensions of meaning for me, especially after I left the church that we planted. Um, I found myself just really Having a hunger and thirst for the table like I'd never had before, because I was in such a broken place and just wanting God to meet me there and to hold me there, Um, I never will forget when I first went on sabbatical and a lot of things in me were falling apart. Um, Went to a Catholic church the next Sunday just because I wanted to go somewhere where I knew they'd be serving from the table and where nobody knew who I was. I just wanted to kind of wanted to slip in and all that, and (laughs) just had this really harrowing experience. I think about this often, actually. Um, Came down for communion and took the bread. And the lady was holding the, the chalice there near the altar, and they and ran out of wine just before I got down there. And she just kind of looked at me and just sort of shrugged, like, I just can't even tell you how devastating that was in that moment, because, I mean, that, that's symbolically powerful, y'all. I mean, this is, what I heard in that was, the blood of Jesus does not extend to where you are. There's not enough grace for you. There is now no longer a sacrifice for sins, in the words of Hebrews, and really, terrible kind of existential moment. I mean, it's one thing like when the, if they run out of Diet Coke, but this is the blood of Jesus here. So <laughs> that was not good. And um, a couple months later, though, when I actually did leave the church, I, I had never felt more uncentered, more untethered uh, in terms of just who am I now? Um, I think leading the church that I founded was such a crucial part of my identity, and all these things were called into question. So I was looking for a place, and this, uh, the search was narrowed quickly. I wanted to find a place where I knew I could come to the table weekly, um, but as a Pentecostal who's been largely shaped by women in ministry, I didn't really feel great about going to a church where women would not be allowed to serve. So if you want weekly communion and a place where women serve, that will narrow the search really, really quickly. So I landed in an Episcopal church named St. Peter's, uh, a beautiful, beautiful church. And I just remember week after week when that invitation would come, I loved that in that tradition, when you come to the altar, you actually kneel, and what it meant for me Who'd always been on the giving end, you know even kind of experimenting with all this for me before was I, everything was in public i've been in full-time ministry since I was twenty one and I 'm just trying to figure this stuff out now to come to church with the sense that I have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute, really feeling my own vulnerability and need, and just to come and kneel and receive it just it was incredibly intimate and I just remember long stretches for, of that year where it, there were just places in me that words could not comfort. Um, no one was able to ever say anything to me that would make me feel better or different. And yet somehow, uh, the Eucharist really for me, in uh, Ronald Roheiser's phrase, became this silent embrace of God, that God's just touching me in my own depths, in places nobody else could reach, in places words could not reach. So that really was transformative for me, because then it kind of became this experience of, I, I feel like especially in that season, it, it was my connection to God, almost exclusively, yeah. because I didn't feel like I had the strength to do anything else, but it was like when there was nothing else I felt like I could contribute or do, I can drag myself out of bed and make myself go to church and go to the table, and over and over again just found that God met me there in really mysterious ways. So, yeah. um, but so with all of that in view, we want to know what the people want to know about the Eucharist. So Paul... <laughs> Absolutely. we've got what, a what are lot the people of people asking.
2: I'll tell you what the people want. <laughs> we've gotten a lot of really good questions. Um, is it true that in the early days, communion took place within the context of a meal? If so, what do we gain or lose by taking communion out of that context? And what would we gain or lose by putting it back into that context? Hmm. That's way more than 140 characters. Yeah, yeah. It's impressive.
1: It is. So, the history of the Eucharist is a long, complicated history. There are, I mean, scholars are not agreed on the history of the Eucharist and how closely it's tied to meals. We're almost certainly talking about different practices in different communities right from the beginning. It is pretty widely agreed that there were, in many of these communities, it was. The Eucharist was centered in a meal at a time when these these congregations were very small. In fact, they wouldn't have identified as congregations. I mean, we're talking about a dozen people, maybe two dozen people meeting in a home, and the Eucharist fits within a whole way of worshiping that's shaped to that place, that, those, that number of people, and so on. But I, I don't think... I mean, I'm interested in the question, but... Meals mean different things in different cultures, and in our culture, what I worry about connecting the Eucharist to a meal is that we tend to eat with people that are like us and that we enjoy, and that we must not let the Eucharist become a meal we're eating with people we enjoy. Yeah. Like, we need to have meals with people we, I mean, I hope some of you, I mean, Jonathan went out to dinner, I hope that last night, the two of us, we were friends having a meal together, right? Right? And and that's beautiful and important, but that's not the Eucharist. I mean, the, what brings me to the Lord's table is not I like you, but it's the Lord likes you, and He's telling me I have to, and you have to like me whether you like it or not. Right? Like th- that's the whole point of the Eucharist. So I, I would love to see the table rework the way we handle our meals, who we invite to our table, how we pray over our food, how we think about the preparation of our food. I think it should shape our imaginations and our practices. But I think having the ritual of the Lord's Supper to critique the way we practice meals is crucial. And if, if, if we just resituate it in a, a meal practice without letting that be sanctified, then I think we just end up uh, corrupting what the Eucharist is meant to be. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about, just
0: as you shared that, um, a couple weeks ago I shared this quote from Tolkien that I loved, um, his whole thing about you know, the Eucharist is the fulfillment of all your great loves on the earth. Yeah, 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 Quote, But um, I I actually went back within the last week, and I was rereading the full context of that in the letter. And the thing that made me just so happy about it, I mean, just everything you were saying, Chris, about how in terms of how we celebrate meals, it typically is with people who are like us and that we want to be with and value. (laughs) Right, right. And Tolkien has this really provocative section there, where he actually encourages people to receive communion in places where they'd be very uncomfortable. Yes. That would be better. So if I can read that, um, that, that's a great thing about technology these days, it's on (laughs) the whim I can pull this up. Um, Yeah, so Tolkien writes in this letter, also I can recommend this as an exercise, alas, only too easy to find opportunity for. Make your communion in circumstances that affront your taste. Choose a snuffling or gabbling priest or a proud and vulgar friar. And a church full of the usual bourgeois crowd, ill-behaved children, from those who yell to those products of Catholic schools, who the moment the tabernacle is open, sit back and yawn, open-necked and dirty youths, women in trousers, and often with hair both unkempt and uncovered.
1: He was here this morning. He was. He, how did he know? <laughs> it's, like,
0: it's like he was here. Go to communion with them and pray for them. It will be just the same or better than, than that as a mass said beautifully by a visibly holy man and shared by a few devout and, and decorous people. It could not be worse than the mess of the feeding of the 5,000, after which our Lord propounded the feeding that was to come. Oh. I just love that whole section. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it, it is so true that when, we, the, when we're looking to share a meal with friends, we want people who share our common hobbies and interests, yep. and that brings some kind of
1: delight. And I just love that notion that communion is almost more powerful the more dissonance there is. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to be said here. I I think this is one of the connections that the New Testament and early church fathers make between the Lord's Supper and manna Mm. in the Old Testament. So manna is this gift God gives to Israel to sustain them in the wilderness, but Israel doesn't know what to do with it because they don't have a taste for it. And they have the taste slaves have for slaves' food, and that's what they demand. And God gives them manna and says, I give you this that you don't know what it is, Precisely to test your hearts. Mm. And I think the Eucharist is is like that. And for those of us who've been raised in individualist spiritualities that are all about what's happening in our heart and all about searching for these dramatic experiences with God, I think part of what the Eucharist is God saying, this is what you need. It's not what you think you want. Mm -hmm. It's what you need. And that it's constantly critiquing even our desire to experience God. Because I think it's possible to love experiences with God Rather than loving God Sure. And it's possible to love the feeling we have and what we think of as the presence of God instead of loving God. In fact, one of the things that I think about often is a lot of times we sing and we sing about the presence of God. And I wonder if that's what we care about instead of God. Mm. And what the Eucharist gives us is not presence, but, him, but himself. But yes. uh, what's promised here is, I'm giving you what you need. Mm. This is me. And it, it may, for many of us, it may be a letdown, but I think it's a holy letdown, yeah. right? It's the kind of letdown we need to, to bring our spirituality into repentance.
0: I love that phrase you used earlier of the sanctified letdown. Yeah, that's Jamie Smith's yeah. phrase, yeah. yeah. It, because it's so like, in a sense, it feels like at first, when, especially again, kind of in our world where everything was about having these big emotive experiences, right. Right. cataclysmic, apocalyptic, sound, Sinai, you know, thunder and lightning and all that. In a way, it feels like freedom to pursue God in that way, but over time, I think the need for that to always feel right becomes a kind of tyranny, you know, because our, our emotions become tyrannical. Absolutely. Because there are going to be many occasions for many reasons where we're not going to be feel the presence of God in that way. And I don't know, there's something about the way that this reforms us, you know, to really, especially when we really believe that God is present um, when we do this, no matter, you know, wherever our emotions are. There's just something about that that. Stirs something really, really deep. Absolutely. Um, and it's something that shapes us in the depths of us, even when we don't feel like it's doing anything at all. I find that, you know, coming to the Lord's table is, is, is unique for me in that way in that I never really know what God is doing in me in that moment when it's happening. I mean, I'm yep. very rarely aware. And uh, I've learned to even not trust my emotions in that way. I find that often what the slow work that God's doing as we come to the table over and over again, it's something that bears out over time. But that often in the moment we have we have no idea what's happening, and that's okay. That's what right.
1: teaches us to trust. Because communion is about us, not just about me. And I think we we will will always get this wrong if we're thinking about communion. Even even if we have weekly communion, yeah. if the way we narrate it is always about the individual and in God and what's happening in their heart, sure. it still misses the point. It's about <laughs> it's about having a new center of gravity in the world to your neighbor. I mean. And, and I, well, I think the, the most powerful experiences of communion by people that, I, that I've heard testify about it are about that. I remember at Renovatus once after I spoke there, one, a man came up to me and said that while he was standing in line for communion, he had a vision and everyone he saw was bleeding with the wounds of Christ. Mm. And what I love about that experience is it's not about him It's about them and recognizing that we are the people marked by the character of this one who's present to us, Mm. and that. So it's not that I don't think there are mystical experiences. I just think that that's never the point. It's never about me having some kind of eye-opening, wonderful, delightful experience of God. It's about what God is doing to us to make us the people of God in the world, Mm. and constantly reorienting us to reality. Mm. And you know, I don't. I don't want to rant too much, but I want to rant a little bit about. We have got to repent of this pursuit of innocence and this alternative world building that keeps us from having to contact real people in the real world. We've got to stop making our own music and our own movies and our own jobs. We've we've got to engage the world, and I think the Eucharist is the door to that world. This is the world I have made. I've made you with bodies, and I've made you to be communal, and it orients us to that. Mm.
0: Amen, that's
2: so really good. good. I'm saying amen to that. <laughs> right. really good. This is a, uh, a really good like nuts and bolts kind of question. Um, so how important to the Eucharist are the specific physical elements in terms of consecrated bread and fermented wine as opposed to gummy bears and Gatorade?
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> now half the people in here are craving gummy bears. Thanks right. for that. Do <laughs> yes. you want to go?
0: No, I want to hear you riff on that.
1: All first, right. I, <laughs> I defer whenever there's questions for a proper theologian instead
0: of a pop culture theologian. Then
1: I'm, I'm so, to to yeah. Let's, yes, this, this it matters. And, and not in a legalistic way. It's not as if God is saying, all right, I have this blessing for you, but if you don't, if you don't hit all the notes just right, I'm not going to release the blessing. It's that things matter. What they are matters. And it, it matters that it's bread and wine that Jesus uses for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that it's bread. It's not something taken from the earth in its raw form. It's something we've made that human culture makes and then offers that as thanksgiving to God. I mean, the reason we call this the Eucharist is it's the thanksgiving we give to God for the gifts he gives to us by what we've made of them. And there's a whole way of orienting to the world that says God gives us this world and sin is broken in all these ways, but then what we do is engage the sinful broken world and make good of it that is our thanksgiving to God, and we learn that at the, at the Eucharist, that this is how we give thanks to God. So it matters that it's bread. It matters that it's wine. And, and I'll say this about the wine. I'm very sensitive to those communities that are, that are concerned about former alcoholics and people who are struggling with alcohol in terms of offering real, real wine at the table. And I don't want to dismiss that, and we do need to have real conversations about how best to handle that. But in a lot of churches, we avoid real wine because we're, all, we're inhabiting an alternative universe, and that's problematic. I mean, Jesus was not making grape juice. And no matter how many fundamentalist Bible teachers try to tell you that that's so, it's not. right. Jesus wasn't making grape juice. And sometimes I think we're trying so hard to maintain a certain kind of innocence that it's reflected even in our practices. And, second, and I'll go on forever if you don't stop me. But I mean, I think another part of it is when you don't believe things matter in themselves, you think anything can substitute That what really matters is happening in your heart, so we could use potato chips and Coke, or we could use gummy bears and chocolate milk. No, because chips and Coke mean a certain thing. They are a certain thing. Bread and wine are different things. They mean different things. And the gift of God resides in the things. He's not just arbitrarily choosing things that have no meaning. And that's what I mean when it orients us to the world. It says pay attention to what these things are. There's a reason that we enter this community with washing of water. And that we ordain for ministry by the anointing with oil. Those things matter because oil means something. Because God has made it to mean something. And water means something. And bread and wine mean something. So I'm not saying anything legalistic. There may be occasions where God, I mean, I love your story. You told just a few weeks ago about yeah. your friend who has this kind of experience of God with invisible elements because they won't let him have it. Mm-hmm. I mean, God is God. Right. God will do what God does. Sure. But, but bread and wine matter because they mean something. Mm-hmm. And we need to attend to that.
0: I was reading one of Augustine's sermons uh, the other day on the Eucharist where he just kept hammering home the baking of the bread. The bread has to be baked. Yes, 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 yes. And like that we are being baked, that the refining fire Mm -hmm. of God comes to us kind of through this meal. And so even those kinds of very tangible connections with with the elements. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Mm. That's great. Uh, We've gotten several of these kinds of questions, so hopefully this will be a broad enough stroke here that we can hit them all. Some of these questions deal with uh, open versus closed table. Uh, Specifically, did the early church break bread with non-believers or seekers? Why or why not? Uh, Where did the idea of closed communion originate? And what do we mean when we say that we practice an open table? So really contrasting closed table versus open table. How did the early church approach Mm -hmm. it? Why don't you go first, and I'll follow it up. Okay.
0: Well, um, I mean, there are several questions bound up there. Uh, We've talked a little bit today so far that there are different meanings of open table, even if we use that phrase. Some people would use open table to describe the practice of um, opening the table to all baptized Christians, whatever tradition they come out of. Or uh, it can mean very open, like as in whosoever will open. I know for me, um, a lot of this whole journey for me in terms of the Eucharist started with John Wesley, who was my gateway drug to everything. Um, Seeing Wesley kind of as the grandfather of the Pentecostal movement and coming to understand my own world kind of in Wesleyan terms... Wesley really talked a lot about this idea of a kind of evangel- an evangelistic Eucharist that um, you know, that, that yes, if, if a person that could be the beginning of saving faith for someone, in other words, is uh, when they say yes to God through receiving the, the Lord's Supper. So I've very much been shaped by that. I mean, as you, know, as you gestured towards earlier, Chris, there is a lot of debate in terms of where and how the practices develop in the early church, and so you'll read a lot of dissenting opinions on, yeah. on that for sure. Um, I can tell you that my my own reading of church history is is this that, especially around the time of Constantine, you know, the more, you, the, there there comes a point where the table gets more and more closed, mm-hmm. and that definitely seems to coincide with ways that the church start to starts to kind of collapse and collude with worldly systems of power. That you know, the more there's a sense of um, how can I say that right? That the more that the practice of the table becomes bound up with um, authority systems of the world, the more there, there needs to be this distinction of kind of an us and them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I personally think that the the practice of coming to the Lord's table should be very shaped by Jesus's own table fellowship, you know, that this, which is very much a matter of being eyeball to eyeball, face to face with people that are very other. So that, again, the encounter with God, it's not just encountering the otherness of God's presence, but we're encountering the otherness of real people around us. So those are all reasons for me that having the table very open is, is important. What, what, what would you want to
1: say? Yeah, this is, this is a very complex question to try to answer. I mean, for one is you have different themes. I mean, one is what you, you did just now is you appealed to Jesus' table fellowship. So you read the Gospels and you see the way Jesus shared meals. But what happens in the early church, it seems by and large, is the notion that the meal was the place where the community acknowledged its calling to one another. So early, so early, even before the Middle Ages, the first few hundred years of the church, the, the, the Lord's table was less about what God was doing for individual Christians and more about those Christians acknowledging what their call to Christ meant for them in relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. So it was about you come to the and you see this especially in Paul, like Paul's emphasis on the man who's living in open sin. He says, you know, you can't eat with that man meaning you can't have him at your Eucharist because if you're tolerating his open sin, it's bringing the, the meaning of the meal into question. Right Now, where, where that went wrong is what you're talking about, where it starts to be, it becomes the church's meal instead of the Lord's. Now, we live on the other side of the Reformation where we no longer have that problem. Now, the meal, our problem is the opposite one. Our problem is the meal tends to be all about individual spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I I spend a lot of time thinking and praying about this and talking with different people and reading about it. I I don't know where it's going to take us, but I think where we have to begin is to refuse to let either of those mistakes happen. That At this table, it's not just about me and Jesus. It's not just about what is God doing for me. But it's also his table and not the church's table. So it has to be open because he's the Lord of it. But when we come to the table, we have to know we're not just coming to Jesus. We're coming to one another. And that when we narrate what's happening at this table, what we're telling people is you're welcome here, but know that you're coming here is not only a, an acknowledgement of, of prayer, I need you, Lord, mm-hmm. but it's also a kind of promise to the rest of us that you want to be there for us, mm-hmm. that we're pledging something with our bodies too, and that what we're asking is, Lord, make me capable of living that promise, right? right? That. Let your grace transform me in such a way that I can be there for these people. So I think we have to find a way to integrate the ways in which communion is about us mm-hmm. and what the Lord wants to do to us, and the way in which communion is about Him and mm-hmm. what He wants to do in us. And I, we can't let those things pull apart. Absolutely.
0: I think, um, I don't know if this is tangential to that, but the whole notion of open or closed table one thing I feel very passionate about is that the table definitely shouldn't be closed within. Christian tradition. I mean, oh, I really believe right. the hope of yes. the unity of the church, um, the only hope for a visible unity in the church, will somehow come through this table. And I think we're seeing a lot of movement in, uh, in that, yes. in a healthy way, in different quarters of the church. I always love, uh, Chris and I were both very influenced by a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, and you always think of that story he tells. When he taught at Notre Dame for so many years, um, he, he would go to Mass. He was Methodist, going to Catholic Mass, and some of the priests there were really strict on, you know, if you're non-Catholic, you don't, can't come to the table. So he would get in line with the priests, and some of them wouldn't serve him because, you know, he was Protestant and all that. But he always talked about how, like, if one priest wouldn't serve him, he would get in line and go to another priest until he found someone that would serve <laughs> yes, him. absolutely. Like this, you're yeah. not going to deny me from right. the table. Yeah. But I do think even right now there's a lot of things happening ecumenically around yes. the, the table that are really beautiful. in terms of, I think this really is... This is the meal that unites us and that breaks down all barriers of division among the church. Yes, so, that's something I know we're very
1: both very passionate about. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean my default position would be the table is open, and as we're living with one another, if it becomes clear that I keep coming to the table but I'm not I'm not carrying through on the promise that I'm making to to the community, that that in some ways the Lord is going to bring me to accountability mm-hmm. for that, and we have to trust that that He's. He loves us too much to let us abuse one another without interruption at some
2: point. That's good. That's good. This question might be a little too much. Uh, In what ways is the Eucharist Trinitarian?
1: Oh, uh, I'm I'm definitely taking this one first. (laughs) You should. As you should. In so many ways. One is that the, the heart of the gospel, I think, is that God loves us so much that God will not be God without us. God could be God without us, but won't be. This is what I think is going on in Romans 8, where Paul says, God gave up his son for us, so that with his son he might give us all things. And you think about, I mean, thats that's we can quote that verse, but think about it for a moment. God gave up his son for us. And if the Son is God, if the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with God, God's giving up his own life for us. He doesn't want to be God without us. So what's happening at the Eucharist is that inner Trinitarian openness and gift is including us. So if you ask a question like, at the table, who's giving what to whom? Yeah. Well, in some ways, it's the Father giving the Son to us. And the Spirit is making all of that possible. In other ways, we're giving thanksgiving to God, the Father, for the Son in the Spirit. In some ways, we're invoking the Spirit to give the Son to us so we can give thanks to the Father. And I could go on, right? Because what's happening is it's, it's eternal participation in the life of God. So the Eucharist is, for me, the doctrine of the Eucharist, I mean, the, the practice of the Eucharist and the doctrine of the Trinity explain each other. And that you can't make sense of what Christians mean when they're talking about the Trinity without Eucharistic practice. And the only way you're ever going to start to understand why Christians talk the way they do about the Eucharist is if you have some sense of what we mean when we say God is Trinity. That God is both the giver, the gift, and the reception of that gift, and then makes room for us to be givers, gifts, and receivers of gifts. So I'm about to shout. I'm going to speak in tongues over this. (laughs) Glory, <laughs> hashtag glory, hashtag glory. That's right? Um,
0: no, I mean, because the trendy is perfect reciprocity. There's no yes. distinction right. between giving and receiving. I mean, that's what happens in the table of the Lord. Is that. All of that is merged. God is giving himself to us. We are giving ourselves to God. We're giving ourselves to each other. And, not, and all of those lines are, are, are erased because all this is happening simultaneously. You can't even tell who's giving what and who's receiving what. Right. and that, that that's so-
1: the kingdom of God. So in every, in every other kingdom, giver and gift is about power play. Yes, yes. The giver has power over the, over the receiver and or the receiver finds some way to manipulate the giver. Mm-hmm. But it's all about power play. But in, in God and in the kingdom of God, gift and reception of gift are, are open. They're free. They're absolutely free. And that's what we learn. That's the politics that we learn at this table, mm-hmm. that we are, we're humanized by giving and by receiving, mm-hmm. and we learn to be the people we're meant to be in the world. Because what, what I would argue is the human calling, and I think all human beings everywhere share this. Christians are just the ones who, who are willing to live it. That's, we're just the people who say yes to the call. But every human being shares the call to bring God's holiness to bear on the world. We're meant to be the creatures that sing about the mountains and sing about the seas and sing about the stars so that the stars and the mountains and the seas are brought into the praise of God. Mm. We're, We're the creatures that witness to angels and aardvarks and everything else about the beauty of God. And that is what the Eucharist teaches us. Look at this world that's shot through with the glory of God. It's for you. You're making it. I mean again think about the fact that it's he doesn't say bring wheat from the field or mm-hmm. grapes from the vine he says bring bread that you've baked yeah. and wine that you've made because we're collaborating with God in making this world beautiful mm-hmm. and those of you who are interested in the arts that's your calling that's your calling make this world beautiful for God and bring his beauty to bear on the world that's I mean Eucharistize the world that's what we're mm-hmm. called to do
2: so good like I'm getting carried it, away here. I'm about to take off right running. There. Good grief! Uh, last question, and I think uh, this hits some important points. There's a lot of language built around mystery when we talk about the table, um, but what do we really mean when we say that there's mystery wrapped up in the table? You go this time. Oh, no, that's I stole the, that's the
0: last one. That is your. This is your thing. Uh. You have a thing. This is your thing.
1: Also, I'm going to make connection to the Doctrine of Trinity again. You notice how I pretended to be deferential there and then just took the question anyway? <laughs> Gift, giving, yes. receiving, it's all <laughs> the same. Very skilled. So when we talk about the Doctrine of the Trinity, we have this bad habit of, of appealing to mystery as a way of saying, I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I'm sure there is an explanation, but I can't get to it. But mystery, that's not what it is. Mystery is something that is so meaningful And meaningful in such a way that explanation is useless. And we know mystery in faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. God is a mystery. The doctrine of the Trinity is difficult. It's challenging. It takes work to understand it conceptually and historically. But it's not a mystery. It can be done. But God can't be known in that way. You don't know God the way you know the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't think about God in that way. You can know God, as Paul will say, his prayer to the Ephesians is, I want you to know the love of Christ that passes knowing. Yes. So that, that kind of knowing is possible. What happens at the Eucharist is a mystery. Now, the way we talk about it, when we talk about what we mean when we say it's sacramental and what we mean when we say that it's Jesus' body and blood in a particular way, that can be understood. That's not mystery. It's difficult to understand because it's not second nature to us. But the experience of God at the table is a mystery. And for me, the most important thing is that we let the faith in the mystery of God run ahead of our understanding or lack of understanding. And there's a, there's a disease in evangelicalism that tells, tells us that we have to understand something before our faith can be activated. Like, explain it to me, and once I'm convinced that it's right, then I'll act on it. That's not how this life works. Life with God is the other way around. It's faith that comes first and makes possible a certain kind of understanding. And understanding is may take a long time and a lot of conversations. What matters is that we remain present to the mystery and, and know that the kind of understanding we need will come when we need it. Yeah. But this isn't about understanding it. This is about being present to the God who is mystery, who is working in his grace that is mysterious in the mystery of our own lives. Mm-hmm. Beautiful.
0: Um, I know we need to wrap up. I think if I could just riff on this at the end, since we didn't get to this in this service, but it didn't last. I think I loved a few moments ago when you specifically used the phrase of, you talked about the politics of the Eucharist and the politics mm-hmm. of the table, yeah. Which for me is so is so instructive. And I know one of the things that I, I, I'm just I'm just thinking a lot about these days as I continue to see the ways that the politics of the world infiltrate the church and become more determinative for our thinking than how we than what we do here. Yes. And um, we we begin within the body of Christ to think in categories that are just fundamentally um, foreign to the Christian faith and way of being in the world. You know, right and left are not theological categories. Conservative (laughs) and liberal are not theological categories. Right. And yet often the church ends up, we experience the the, the schism within the body of Christ based on those very worldly terms. And one of the things that's most hopeful for me about communities that return to the table is I think at least gives us some level of hope um, that we get back to this practice that sort of transcends all this kind of earthly politics and grounds us in our identity that's entirely in Christ, neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. This reminds us who we are and what we are, and I think gives us the, the chance, at least hopefully, uh, to, to to rise above all of that and, and to learn that and this is where we get the politics of God. It's all wrapped up in, in the Eucharist. And I think especially in this time where culture becomes more and more polarized. Um, That's one of the things that, for me, is most hopeful about what happens
1: around the table. Yeah, if I could riff on that for just a moment. I mean, I think we use a lot of terms, Eucharist, communion, holy communion, and and, and Lord's Supper, but the weight here, I think, needs to fall on that it's the Lord's Supper. Yes. That it's Jesus. He invites whomever he wants. Mm -hmm. He serves what he thinks we need. And, and we are guests at that table. And I think recognizing that we're guests among other guests of his, I think is we can't live in the world rightly without that. The other thing I will say is that the Eucharist is always tied to crucifixion. Yeah. And the, in, in the story of Jesus and in the story of our lives, the Eucharist opens up on Gethsemane and death. And when, when worldly politics start to control the way we feel and talk and act, it's because we're trying to avoid death. Mm-hmm. We want, there's something we want to keep that we don't want to die. Yeah. And what the Eucharist is is an invitation to come share a meal with the Lord who has already died for us mm-hmm. and is calling us to put to death all of those allegiances. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the promise we're making when we come here, is I'm making a promise to you at this table that as he gives me grace, I won't let my worldly allegiances keep me from caring for you yes. or from anyone yes. else. Mm-hmm. And that's the promise we have to make at the table. That's church discipline is all of my other allegiances die at this table. I, I bear my cross from this table and to this table and from it again. And I won't allow my worldly connections to determine who I love or how I love them. Yeah. And that's, that's the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That's the kingdom of God. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah. One more time, let's give a hand to other Chris Green. So thankful
2: Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.